This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The gig economy could very well be upset by California Assembly Bill 5. The legislation forces companies like Uber and Lyft to reclassify contractors as employees. This could help thousands of workers to qualify for minimum hourly wage and benefits. The bill is already getting pushback from winemakers, religious organizations, food delivery services, as well as ride companies. The legislation was passed by both the state Senate and Assembly and awaits the signature of Governor Gavin Newsom. Although Newsom says he would sign the bill into law, he also says he's open to working with companies to make some changes to it. Uber has already stated that they would not be changing their business practices. With more on this, we're joined here in studio by Matthew Bidwell, Associate Professor of Management here at the Wharton School, Lindsay Cameron, Assistant Professor of Management here at Wharton, uh, and also joining us on the phone, Vina Dubal, who is an Associate Professor of Law at the University of California at Hastings. Matthew, great to see you. Nice Thank to you. See you again. Lindsay, nice to have you here. Thank you for coming in. You're welcome. Vina, great to have you with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I guess, Matthew, this is obviously this is a point of conversation for so many people, so many businesses right now. Uh, the potential that this bill may have in the state of California would be what, do you think? Um, I mean, I think a big change um, across the board. I mean, in many ways, what it's doing, I think, is, is clarification. Um, we've had for... However many years, I mean, at least back to when Microsoft got sued by the IRS over 20 years ago, um, there's been a huge amount of confusion about what really is a contractor, what isn't. The IRS has always said, well, there are basically 20 questions you want to look at, but none of them really answer the answer the question. Even actually beyond that, there's a lot of other things you want to take into account. So there's been this tremendous gray area. Um, and, you know, I think one potential benefit for businesses may just be making it a lot clearer who's a contractor and who isn't. Um, I think it will, you know, as you're seeing from this backlash by a lot of other companies, by a lot of companies, there are a lot of organizations that are using people as contractors who will find that under this law, that's no longer the, that those people need to be classified as employees. Um it's going to be a big change. Um, where you sit on whether that change is positive or negative probably depends on your perspective. From my point of view, you know, we have employment laws for a purpose. Yeah. We have a sense that, um, that there's an imbalance of power by and large between employers and employees, and we want to have protection for employees. And if that's the case, you don't want it to be easy for organizations to say, yeah, you know, we'd have to do this for you if you're an employee, but that seems hard. So let's just say you're not an employee and treat you in the same way. Lindsay, what are your thoughts? Well, I think why Uber and Lyft are really interested in this is about algorithms. And are algorithms considered like a controlling force, i.e., is that one of the one of the definitions of sort of like trying to figure out whether somebody's a contractor or not is how much their work activities are coordinated by sort of their hiring organization. And so there's been a lot of conversation of whether or not the algorithms that sort of run these platforms, are they acting as sort of a pseudo manager? Uh -huh. So are these folks really independent contractors, i.e. do they really have autonomy and sort of choosing their own schedule? Obviously, they have to purchase their own vehicles and things like that. Um, but is that sort of like a false sense of autonomy? And are algorithms really sort of like the invisible hand behind the curtain? Is that a question that's that's even really been addressed up until this point? And, and, and obviously part of this is the fact that algorithms have been in play now for, you know, X period of time. But 
this same type of activity has been going on for for a, a longer period of time. I mean, gig work has been around before there was even employment work. Like you yeah. think of sort of like the short term folks would do, you know, odd jobs around manual labor around different seasons, like harvesting season or whatever. And there are certain industries, you know, particularly in like the creatives, like acting or um, that have always been sort of independent contract job. So gig work, definitely not new. I think what's really new here is the role of algorithms and how they're sort of stepping in to coordinate work, how they can sort of slice work down to the, the smallest micro tasks. Like you think of MTurk. Like instead of getting, um, MTurk is a, an online labor platform on Amazon where folks can sort of, um, people can post assignments and then workers can go on there and do them. Right. And typically imagine if you want to translate a document, now you can just have people just translate a single sentence. And then you can have an algorithm sort of verify how good it was, an algorithm that helps sort of determine their ratings and are they eligible for future assignments. So sort of what, what I find new and compelling about this type of work is sort of the role of the algorithms. Yeah. But this law, the AB5 law, has a much bigger consequences sort of was, as what Matthew was pointing out beyond just algorithmic work. Vina, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I, I really agree with um, what Professor, um, forgive me, your name was uh, Bidwell, um, was saying in, in so much as I think that the companies in California who are most concerned about AB5 are ones that have been taking a gamble. Um, they are ones who looked at the original California test, which was in place since the 1990s, the Borello test, and said, you know, we think we can get away with, um, with misclassification buying our workers under this test. Um, and even if we can't, we're just going to try it. We're going to see, um, we're going to see, you know, do our workers sue? Is there state enforcement? And, um, and frankly, most of those companies, I would say 98% of those companies uh, would, would have been in violation of the law under the original test. I think more than anything, what AB5 has done is, A, offer clarification to businesses and to workers um, as to what, what kinds of um, business models are covered by California employment laws. Um, and, um, and two, I think it has drawn attention um, to this problem, which in California has really been a problem since the 1970s. It's not sort of new at all. Certainly it's been amplified um, by the news coverage of what we call the gig economy, the tech-enabled gig economy. But frankly, the, the large percentage of workers that are most impacted um, by this bill um, are, are outside any sort of labor platform. Um, that said, it also actually draws attention away from the facade of the algorithm because the, the attention, the, the common law of agency tests, which is traditionally how we um, sort of analyze who is an employee versus who is an independent contractor, um, both for tort law and for employment and labor laws, um, it, the focus was on, you know, does the employer maintain the right to control, not do they actually control, but do they maintain the right to control? And um, and and the answer clearly was was yes in this case. Um, but a lot of the litigation turned around exactly um, what Cameron is talking about 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 algorithms and what the ABC test says is you know what this is actually about power, which is why which is why and how we have the laws that we have and the, pan the panoply of laws that we have in place that were put in place during the New Deal in the 1930s and the throes of the Great Depression. Um, people who didn't have power in relationship to their to their company um, needed certain protections and, um, and certain rights. And so the ABC test sort of brings it back to that legislative intent. Um, this is really about power and it captures, um, I think, power dynamics and power relations, whether or not they're algorithmically enabled in a much more 
clear way. And so part of the PR sort of push um, from from um, the employer side around this has been, oh, this is creating all this um, ambiguity. We don't know. And it's actually fascinatingly um, the exact opposite. It is the most clear test we have on the books. If right. you do the same thing as your company, then you are their employer. Um, and although Uber continues to contest that their drivers do um, do do the same thing as them, I think the um, the the uh, the analysis around this, the legal analysis on this, is actually quite clear. If if I can for a second, Matthew. I- Let's first, a moment, talk about the contract worker and the role that that title has had in the economy and its level of importance overall and whether or not maybe we're starting to see a mind shift on whether we need to have contract workers in this country. I mean, I think, you know, Lindsay's right. I mean, the, we've always had contract workers. I mean, one of the, and I think we've probably talked about this, I've talked about this with you in the past. I mean, one of the weird things, so... When I was growing up as an academic, so thinking about dissertations and that sort of stuff, it's the late 90s, early 2000s. And then we thought there was this huge explosion of contract work with the internet and all that sort of stuff. Um, Only the statistics said that wasn't happening. Um, Since then, we've had the gig economy. And so for the last 10 years, the employment relationship has changed completely. People no longer work for employers. No. I mean, actually, the number of contract workers has changed, has stayed stable really for the last 20 years. I suspect the composition has changed. Um, I think also what you probably see more now is, I mean, what that advert calls the side hustle. So, you know, a lot of people drive Uber. The number of people who are doing it as their main source of income is significantly smaller. Um, So I think, you know, there are all sorts of interesting opportunities for people to make extra money. There are all sorts of interesting opportunities for people to structure their lives and their work in ways that are different from regular employee. But it's not its not the huge segment of the labor market people would like us to believe. It's about 10%. It's been about 10% for the last 20 years. Lindsay, you have a unique understanding of this particular topic and that you told me before you went on the air that you have driven for both Uber and Lyft in the past. And how this potential change really could have an impact on drivers Mm -hmm. as well as the companies themselves moving forward. Yeah, like so to build on sort of um, Matthew's point about how a lot of people are doing this for side hustle, the majority of workers who are working for these platforms are doing it for extra income, but the majority of work that is being done on the platform in total is doing by people who depend on this for their full time. For their full, for the, all their earnings, they're, they're dependent on the earnings. So, in addition to me driving, I've been following a group of a hundred drivers for the past three years, all across the United States and Canada. And I'd say at least seven. I mean, all except one. So that's ninety nine percent of my drivers depend on this money to pay some crucial bill, a utility bill, a child support, um, you know, their their mortgage or their rent. Mm-hmm. But you know, at least seventy percent. Like this is the main way they're getting money into their company. So even though I think, you know, I agree with Matthew that sort of a national level, the number of contingent workers maybe hasn't grown that much. I think from the business end of it, you've got businesses like Uber and Lyft, but also sort of like interpretive services that sort of rely all on contract workers to get their work done. So there'll be a disproportionate, almost like an inverse impact on these types of companies that rely solely on contract workers. Vanny, your thoughts? 
Yeah, you know, one of the things that I've shown in um, in my research, um, sort of scraping through the archives, is that in the early 20th century, we didn't use the words employee and independent contractor um, in the context of um, safety net protections or employment and labor law protections. And actually, um, when when the National Labor Relations Act, for example, was passed in 1935, we were using the word worker to refer to um, to you know people who generally didn't have a lot of power in relationship to um, to the folks with, for whom they were working. And it was only um, after businesses sort of uh, in the 1940s tried to get out from under these laws um, that we, uh, in 1948, passed Taft-Hartley. And one of the main aspects of Taft-Hartley was that it carved um, independent contractors out of the out of the out of the National Labor Relations Act in particular, but eventually out of the Social Security Act, etc. And um, and the reason that they wanted to do that was that, of course, they didn't want to have to pay the extra expenses. Um, but nothing actually changed in the work. So, um, you know, taxi workers were doing the exact same work that they were doing um, doing before. Their businesses changed their models and tried to make themselves look very different. And so, you know, part of what it's true that we've, you know, since we've started tracking these things, at the, um, or at least since the 1970s, since this became a phenomenon, that we've had this sort of the same percentage of, of contingent workers, but large majority of even I think those workers are are likely misclassified or called contract workers because they um, because of the way that the companies structure their business model. But actually, the the, the relationship between the individual and the um, and the company is is one of subordination. Um, so you know, just just to point out that if we do have a growth of contract workers, it's not fundamentally because the work has changed, or or if we eventually do have have a growth of contract work, it's not because fundamentally the work has changed. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It's because of how companies are trying to evade laws so that they don't have to pay the extra 25 to 30 percent that employment employment actually costs. Matthew? And, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Finish up, Vina. I'm sorry. Yeah. Just to finish up is that, you know, these companies, Uber and Lyft, which started in, in 2012 in San Francisco, they were really, um, really sort of... Uh, betting on this, betting that they could get away with this. And what they've done over the last six or so years is just continue to avoid um, getting any kind of law on the books, either through um, the courts or through legislation that would, um, that would you know, provide some clarity as to what they were doing. And they've, they've been thriving off of, um, off of the ambiguity here. So they have settled cases, so judges wouldn't make a decision. They have, um, um, you know, used arbitration clauses so that judges wouldn't make a decision on the matter. Right. And I think it's very clear to them that actually if there was a decision made in the, in the judicial process that under any any sort of right to control law, they would be, um, they would have employees. And what's great about AB5 is that um, we're no longer looking to courts for this matter. The legislature has said, look, we're going to clarify this for everyone. Um, you're, you know, your workers are clearly under this test employees. Matthew? I think it would be very interesting to see I mean, see what the response is. I mean, assuming assuming yeah. they don't settle with the governor or, yeah. or find other ways to circumvent it. Um, you know, people who know a lot more about this than me suggest that it will drive their costs up um, in terms of, I think, having to pay minimum wage, yep. having to potentially pay health benefits for some of their workers. Um, 
having to pay for car maintenance and those sorts of things. I mean, there's certainly a big part of me that thinks, you know, if your entire business model relies on paying people below kind of statutory minimums, you know, is that really a business model we want to be supporting? Right. Um, obviously, costs going up in these companies are already losing money hand over fist. Yeah, so yeah. Um, as their costs go up, um, it'll be interesting to see how they adjust. I mean, it may not all be bad for them. I think, you know, what you have seen, I don't know to the extent to which they've engaged in this, but you've certainly seen a lot of other companies, you end up skewing a lot of how you manage people to try and conform to various different loopholes. And so, you know, to try and demonstrate you're not an employee, you maintain an artificially large distance. And so, you know, they may find that once these people are... Um, once the drivers are classified as employers, they're actually employees. There are things they can do that they were scared of doing before. And in some ways, I mean, I think one of the pieces that's really been picked up on, which is an interesting one, is what you do about scheduling. Because if you have to pay minimum wage, you don't want to have too many people scheduled where there's not a lot of business. Right. That will change the relationship. It will reduce some of the flexibility of the, the drivers that, that Lindsay studies. On the other hand, for both parties, it may be a little bit more predictability in some places not a bad thing that actually being able to put together schedules of being able to figure out when we're going to have drivers where could have advantages. Yeah. Yeah, if I could just add to that, um, I think that this model has fundamentally relied on an oversupply of drivers. So drivers right. who work 16 hours a day to make a living are not actually, they don't have fares in their car all 16 hours. They just have to do that because there are so many drivers on the road. Um, and so what this will force the companies to do, and they're already sort of, um, you know, saying this, is that they're going to have to get rid of some of their part-time workers. And um, and while, you know, certainly, uh, you know, upending anybody's ability to make a living is not desirable, this does have the potential to reprofessionalize this industry um, in so much as if you favor full-time workers, if you, if you send work to full-time workers, then those workers are going to want to stay in the game. They're going to work, you know, a reasonable 10-hour shift. And and, um, and they're going to be the ones that get to know the roads the best. They're going to get be the ones that, um, you know, have the best customer service, et cetera, et cetera. And so it'll be good for consumers. It'll probably be more manageable for the companies. And certainly for workers, um, they, will, they, they will have more predictable schedules. And, you know, what drivers tell me all the time is, um, is you know, what flexibility is, particularly the full-time drivers, what flexibility? Yeah, I have the flexibility to work in my car, sleep in my car, and eat in my car, and choose what 14 hours during the day that I have to work work, and that's not flexibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to add on that, I think New York City might have some interesting clues or give us some foresight about what this could mean, particularly for the driving industry. So there, um, there are a lot of things that are idiosyncratic to New York City, but they've been giving sort of like employee-like protections to drivers, though not actually giving them employee status. So one of them is sort of they're a part of sort of the taxi cab and limousine con commission there, so they have to pay um, all these additional fees that do give them sort of benefits, sort of denying into a black car fund. So if right. there is an accident or if they get sick, they're able to pull on uh, these different sites of compensation. And then recently they started implementing, I think it was last year, sort of the minimum wage for drivers there. So... Well, to back up, one, because the fact they have to pay all these additional fees to be part of the Taxi Cab and Limo Commission, it's basically impossible to be a, a part-time driver in New York City. Yeah. Everybody's got to drive full-time. Yeah. Yeah. But what I've been finding in my most recent wave of interviews with the New York City drivers is that they're only getting one ride an hour, and that one ride is giving them sort of the minimum hourly fare. And so they're feeling frustrated because they're waiting in their car 55 minutes to get this ride, but they are getting the guaranteed wage. So 
it's not quite scheduling is sort of like what you know some people might fear the drivers might not have to show up from nine to five but i could see this disgruntlement happening because you're just you're just waiting and you, and you don't know why you're waiting Vina, your thoughts yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One of the things that Lyft has been doing in Uber as well in, in New York City is um, actually logging people off the apps um, um, during periods of low demand because they don't want to have to pay for that downtime. Um, and so, you know, in my conversation with these companies, what I've, what I've suggested is, um, you know, if you move to a more, um, a more schedule, you know, as opposed to what they've done in New York City and California, if you move to a more schedule-based um, model, like they had in the taxi industry for over a century, drivers could maintain flexibility within their schedule. You didn't have to, be, to play games with drivers in the way that they are in New York City, um, and the disgruntlement could uh, could uh, could you know be much lower than it is right now. I think part of what they're doing very strategically is um, you know trying to create disgruntlement among drivers in order to get some pushback in this trial regulatory trial period um, from the workforce against these types of regulations. It's not clear to me that that's necessarily what they're doing is necessarily how it has to be done. Um, but I think that they're experimenting to see what they can get away with. Vina, if you can take us into because of the fact that this bill is sitting on Governor Newsom's desk at this point, and there may be conversations going on between his office and, and companies like Uber and Lyft, how potentially this, this may play out? Because I mentioned the top Uber has kind of said, our structure is our structure, and we're really not going to deviate from that. Yeah. What's pretty um, amazing about this bill, if it does get signed, and you know, he's, Governor Newsom has promised to sign it, um, is that it gives more enforcement power to state uh, actors than, um, than they previously had. So the ABC test or some form of the ABC test is, uh, is the law of the land in Massachusetts, um, to some extent in New Jersey as well. But we haven't seen the type of enforcement in those states simply because state actors don't have a lot of power and because these companies rely on arbitration clauses to prevent class actions. And so um, uh, the last-minute amendment that happened um, in California was that um, AB5 now gives power to city attorneys to file for injunctions um, against these companies complying. And so, and you know, city attorneys are very angry against, uh, angry at gig companies because they have been really intransigent about doing simple things like provide data to the cities in order, in order for them to sort of assess um, uh, wear and tear on the roads, etc. And so um, with this additional piece, um, what can happen is that city attorneys can file an injunction and if a company like Uber says, no, no, we're, you know, we're still going to play the game the way that we've been playing the game, right. a judge could do something like file for um, or, or um, institute civil contempt. And civil contempt gives judges wide leeway in, um, in, in creating sort of punishments for these companies. So, you know, you could have something like um, having, having an executive in a holding cell. You could have, um, you know, wide, um, uh, a wide range of tactics that the state could use to, to create um, a situation in which the companies have to follow the law. Um, and so the statement that they've that they've been making that we're going to just going to go go do business as usual, um, you know, we've been do, getting away with this for six years. We're just going to continue to to use our deep coffers to get away with this, to um, pay our attorneys and um, and and lobby and, and get laws on the books that we like. It's, it might not work anymore. That being said, as you mentioned before, Matthew, these are still companies that are, are not turning a profit, and, and so those exactly. deep those deep coffers are getting a little bit thinner by the by the month and year right now yeah i mean i i'm fascinated by what the end game here i mean 
it's kind of annoying, right? I mean, you assume that what the investors are thinking is sooner or later there'll be a monopoly and they can jack up prices. Yeah. Well, again, is that a business model I feel really excited about? I'm not quite sure. But yes, it's still um, still waiting to see how this actually becomes a profitable business model. And, and for a lot of the drivers out there, they're not even thinking about that question. They're worried about, you know, just putting, in some cases, putting food on the table. Exactly. I mean, when I ask many drivers about their future plans or goals, like they, it's sort of like, you know, I'm focused on the day to day, you know, taking care of my family, sure. paying my bills. Um, it's surprising. Even self-driving cars doesn't come up. It's, you know, I know in the media, I know we like to talk a lot about self-driving sure. cars, yeah. but it's sort of not part of their, their everyday world. Great having you all with us today. Matthew, great to see you again. Thank you. Lindsay, great mm -hmm. to have you in studio. Thank you very much. Vina, thank you for joining us on the phone today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew Bedwell, Lindsay Cameron from here at the Wharton School, Vina Dubal, who is at the University of California at Hastings. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.